welcome to The Final Word with Megan Anders and E.R. Anders. This is our very first podcast, um, and today it's going to be a pretty special one. So we're going to be talking about racism in America across the lifespan. So as I said, I have my dad here with me, E.R. Anders. Hello, everyone. (laughs) So you have kind of a unique perspective on race in America, and I thought that this would be a really good topic to start with um, since we have Donald Trump as our president. He's made a number of, you know, racist comments. Um, And we're seeing kind of the rise of the alt-right, white nationalists, that kind of thing. And it just seems to me, in my living memory, that racism is probably even more of a problem than it's ever been that I can recall. Um, And obviously you've been around a lot longer than I have. And as I mentioned, you have kind of a unique perspective. So I wanted to just kind of um, talk a little bit about your background and get your opinions on the state of racism in the United States. Mm -hmm. So when were you born, Dad? I was born in 1947. Mm -hmm. And of course, my growing up years were in the 50s and 60s, which was which were, uh, in both cases, rather turbulent times. What's different is that I was an army brat. And what some people may not know was, even going all the way back to the 1940s, the late 40s, and the 50s and the 60s, the U.S. military was desegregated. Mm -hmm. Housing was desegregated. Schools were, most, for the most part, desegregated. Mm-hmm. And the housing was, was desegregated. So one of the things I, I think everybody should know and should understand that about racism, and, and particularly American racism, is a learned behavior. It's, you learn it. Um, in some cases, it's, you, know, you learn it from the cradle in some respects, and it's absorbed, it's um, imprinted, people are socialized to racism, and that socialization takes place on both sides of of the color line. Mm -hmm. And, um, but where I was fortunate is in also having to live outside the continental United States, um, realized and actually, uh, had discussions with uh, people about American racism and early recognized just how um, ignorant and abnormal mm-hmm. and uh, how much of an anomaly American racism was because it was perceived that way by, by other people. Mm-hmm. And ironically, by the Germans. Well, let's go through that timeline a little bit, because you mentioned, you know, in 1947, you're born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right? Right. Um, And so during this time period, Jim Crow laws were a thing, mostly in the South, um, most predominantly. So state and local laws enforced racial segregation, and those laws were enforced up until 1965, right? Do you recall as a child um, encountering any, you know, segregation, so like separate 
water fountains, separate, you know, swimming facilities, these kinds of things. Like, how long were you in the U.S. at that in that early stage? Well, um, Pittsburgh was a very interesting city. Um, we lived uh, just down the street. We lived in a, a section of brownstone homes of uh, folks, and most of the people um, either worked for or supported uh, the steel industry. Hmm. And so um, you could consider us that we were, we were middle class. And in the street, 1313 Lake Street, just down the, down the few blocks away from the, the big Bethlehem Steel rolling mill, there was a real mix of folks. You had Italian-Americans, you had Irish-Americans, you had um, people from, you know, you had Polish-Americans, recent, recent immigrants, you know, relatively speaking. Mm. And all in the same neighborhood. All in the same neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And you could, uh, and it was a transition in America that we were, you know, fresh from the, the, the Second World War and very victorious. And so everybody felt good about being each other. American. Yeah. And, and, and being an American and, and seeing how everybody had pulled together. Mm -hmm. And um, even t at uh, the time when I, in, in the late 40s, there were still people talking about um, supporting what they did to support the war. U.S. Um, you know, savings bonds. Everybody had U.S. savings bonds. Everybody participated in in, in the war effort. So it was a different, a different time. Kids mm -hmm. played with kids. Um, whatever um, attitudes people might have had about uh, cultures. Mm -hmm. seem to um, not, you know, trouble the children, at least at the, my early age. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, so you lived in this, you know, middle class kind of uh, environment. Can you tell me a little bit about your parents? Because I know that your dad, as you said, was in the military. But your mom, I thought her career path was pretty interesting because she was a legitimate journalist, mm -hmm. right? Right. She... she gone to work for the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper, which was a, you know, or at the time, a black newspaper, or African-American newspaper, as, uh, as we now call them. And, um, and that's how she actually met my dad, because uh, him being a Tuskegee Airman, um, when they came back from the war, they were, you know, were all, they were heroes, and everybody wanted to know their story, and that's, that's how they met. <laughs> And then, uh, as they say, you know, met and married, and uh, as they say, the rest is, rest is history. Mm -hmm. So how many years did you stay in, in Pittsburgh before you went overseas? Well, n not long, actually. Um, we actually, in the Korean War occurred, and my dad was immediately called up. He was going to college on, uh, on, uh, on, a, on the GI Bill. And although he had been in, uh, a pilot in the, at the time, the Army Air Corps, Army Air Forces, he was, uh, his degree was in civil engineering. And he maintained a reserve commission as a, as a captain. And so when the Korean War broke out, he was called up and as an Army engineer. Mm 
And so he went to Korea and, and, and fought uh, in Korea as a combat engineer. So where were you guys stationed? So at we that were time? still, at that time, we were still in Pittsburgh mm. in, in the 50s. And so. Well, talk about that a little bit. What, what was it like being at war again, like as a kid, you know, knowing that your dad's fighting overseas? Well, it was, um, I think our parents, <coughs> pardon me, um, shielded us pretty much from what was going on. Mm. Um, we didn't have, like we have today, CNN right. and television. So what we learned of the war came from magazines and from newspapers. And when you really think about it, Life magazine and Ebony magazine were kind of like mirror images of each other. Hmm. Did you guys get Ebony? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Ebony and uh, both Ebony and... uh, And Life. And Life magazine, both. Reader's Digest. Those were the three magazines. Hmm. Yep. Keep everybody up to date. And, of course, um, the newspaper, the daily newspapers... um, but again, it wasn't much so much of a burden on on us because we 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 had an extended family. My grandmother and grandfather, and my kind of took care of my mom mm-hmm. and made sure that she had everything she needed. And so we had it was a big brownstone house, and it was a it was a wonderful environment because um, my maternal grandmother played the piano, played in the choir. So on Friday, they would have after work and jam session and people would come over. And that's where my first, first exposure to, to jazz, live jazz. Yeah. And I remember being a little nipper, you know, crawling around on the carpet, <laughs> you know, and looking up at this huge, bass, Mm -hmm. stand-up bass, just thumping, and my grandmother's, you know, on the piano, and (laughs) there was always a saxophone or a a trumpet, and and it was like, and of course, it was a kind of a party atmosphere, but it was a very Mm -hmm. uh, family-friendly atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And the, the other thing that was interesting is my maternal grandmother, having come from Georgia, when she was when she was just a little girl, around the you know, the end of World War One, um, she retrain, retained her love of country music, and mm-hmm. so we had we listened to country music, and uh, and a lot of gospel, and uh, and and that what was interesting is what a lot of people don't know there was a lot of crossover between the gospel music, between the, the two races. Mm-hmm. People tended to like the gospel. It, was, it seemed like it was okay if you, to, to like a, a, a gospel singer of, the, of another race because that was mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, the religious you know, right. thing. And so you didn't get that, that strict feeling of, um, of segregation of music mm-hmm. or in food. Hmm. And so the, that... That was pretty much uh, the experience. Ironically, 
the first my first exposure to any kind of overt racism is one of the things that we we would do is um, at the rolling mill they had this big roll up door and my grandfather and his co-workers were the men who sometimes you see in the newsreel you know with these big huge tongs they're usually stripped to the waist and they grab these great big tongs and they this roll of steel, molten steel, <laughs> and you know, they pull it out, and sparks are flying everywhere, mm. and you know, and so that's that. That's what what he did, mm. but they had they they were allowed to take breaks near the big roll up doors because it was hot in there. Mm. They were sweating, and so as little kids, what we would do would run up to the door, and they would give us um, a couple nickels. And we would run as fast in it as we could to the to the nearest beer garden, as they call them, beer gardens, okay. and get a pail, a bucket, a beer, and the <laughs> and then the simpler times yes. kids could buy beer for a nickel. Yes, <laughs> a it, bucket of beer specifically. And <laughs> so you could, uh, you, that, that's what you did. And of course, they might tip you a little bit if you if you were really quick, you know, mm-hmm. get back over because <laughs> they could only. So much time, and so there was. But when you went to the beer garden, mm-hmm. you you'd see this sign, and the sign said, "No Irishmen or dogs allowed." Wow! Wow! And it was like, that's, that's different. Crazy, yeah. And of course, you know, nobody said anything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody. You know, because in the in the end, it was it's all about uh, the money. You know, they knew that who 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 were who was working you know, <clears throat> at the steel mill, and it was a, a source of income. And so, being a little kid, you know, even though I, I was not, you know, English mm-hmm. <laughs> or Anglo-Saxon by any stretch of the imagination, didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You weren't you weren't coming in anyway, so it was a, a big deal. Right. So that was that was. That is something that one of the untold stories I think of of American. You know, we pride ourselves in being the melting pot, mm-hmm. but there were always, like they say, lumps in the melting pot, and uh, and they were there for a reason. Mm-hmm. But uh, soon after the the war ended, my dad came back, and he decided to stay in the military as a reserve officer. And so we began our, our travels across the country to California because he had both an experience as an aviator and as a combat engineer. One of his jobs was to go to um, Air Force bases and, and his job was to make sure that the, the airfields were up to snuff, you know, mm-hmm. technically speaking. And so we, we traveled number of places and then of course in the um, early 60s we went to uh, Germany mm-hmm. uh, to Karlsruhe Germany and it was again it was kind of very isolated um, community uh, we lived in a place called Paul Revere Village wow talk about American okay in uh and it was just, it was like a row and row of, of apartment buildings that were specifically built 
for the American community, and it was kind of nestled right in the middle of of, of the, the town of Carlsruhe. But it was it was a, it was very much like a compound, and um, that then you know in Germany and for the most part the the only time you would run into the German uh, German would be if one of the maids and it seemed like everybody had a maid for some reason. The American families. Yeah. Oh, okay. To do cleaning. Did you guys and have a maid? Cooking. Yes. <laughs> and uh, That's, so, a black family had a white maid. Yeah. In Germany, Germany. Yeah. on an American base. That must have been interesting. Well, nobody thought it was unusual. <laughs> See, that yeah. was that was the thing. It was like. And what year is this? You said this is the early nineteen sixty-two. Yeah, sixty-three. Oh, okay. And it was like okay. That's, and, uh, and 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 the kid. Well, I remember playing with German kids is they'd used, they liked to uh, uh, trade comics, comic books, mm-hmm. because we had access to the PX, right. and so every month we would get the latest you know, DC comic <laughs> or Marvel comics or, or mm-hmm. you know, whatnot, and so they, they would trade their comics. And the, the, the funny thing about it was their comics were usually the older kind of like original oh yeah back from the day uh-huh. and so and so they being, were like highly coveted by you guys and they wanted the new stuff yes they wanted the new stuff mm-hmm. we wanted the old stuff and so it, it worked out just fine mm-hmm. and the thing is we got along got along just fine mm-hmm. the kids you know kids were kids kids played with kids mm-hmm. so you still didn't have any sense of what was going on in the United States on a greater scale beyond, you know, your experience as a kid. Like, you didn't necessarily see anything on the news about segregation, or did, your, did you ever hear your parents talking about no, it? No, because you have to remember, at, at the time in Germany, uh, the Armed Forces Radio and Television was the only English channel hmm. that, mm-hmm. that, we, could, that we, we could pick up. And both radio and, and, and tele, uh, radio and television, and so again, uh, the military was very you know strict about uh, first of all putting putting forward a good image. impression or image of you know American what was going on in America. So you mm-hmm. didn't uh, and and being in the military. What mattered most, it seemed, was not the color of your skin, mm-hmm. whether you were your dad was an enlisted or an officer. Or an officer. Mm-hmm. So there was again, you know, rank had its privileges, and so it was a different, it was a different hierarchy, hmm. and uh, but again, like I keep saying time and again, kids tend to be kids. It didn't matter. What color your skin is was whether you could throw a ball, mm-hmm. whether you could, you know, whether you had the latest the comic book or, or the latest comic book, or mm-hmm. you know, the things that kids are concerned about. Right. So that socialized racial imprint mm-hmm. never took, at least not with me. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, when we got back from Germany, we were. My dad was stationed at Fort Belvoir. Again, another, you know, a fort. Mm-hmm. Complex. 
and in, in uh, the schools, when you went to schools, again, it was the school was on post, and mm -hmm. it was desegregated, mm -hmm. and <clears throat> the only fly in the ointment was, and this was again before desegregation, which was back in, I want to say, 1963, 64. I want to say, maybe it was 62, I don't know. But anyway, I had to go to uh, junior high, and they didn't have a junior high. They didn't have, they didn't have a full, you know, kindergarten through 12. Mm -hmm. So on uh, base, on base. Mm -hmm. So uh, what they would do, in order to retain that you know, integrated mix, they the, the the army said, we'll place your your child in a Catholic school. Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't know mm -hmm. Catholic schools for the most part.